Welcome back. This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Matt Zabadisky at MedStar. We discuss their unique public utility model, air ambulances, balance billing, and Medicare for All. Please subscribe and leave a rating if you enjoyed this episode. Thanks. Matt McGee is an employee of Frost Insurance. All opinions shared by Matt or guests of the Healthy Conversations podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Frost Insurance or Frost Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for insurance, banking, or investment advice. Healthy Conversations with Matt McGee is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts. Matt, thanks for coming on Healthy Conversations. I appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. We can jump right on in. Um, I think it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about MedStar, what you guys do. I know most people are probably familiar with it, but I don't think most people understand exactly how that works. Yeah, MedStar is probably one of the least understood organizations in our community. Uh, MedStar's official name is the Metropolitan Area EMS Authority, but those are way too many letters to put on the side of an ambulance. So for the last 30 plus years, it's been called MedStar, and we are a governmental authority created by 15 member cities, so Fort Worth and then 14 suburban cities all the way from Hazlitt to Burleson, White Settlement, Haltom City, Saginaw, just the entire region, essentially a little bit from everything from the um, Arlington City line west. Um, And because we're a governmental entity, we are subject to all of the typical things that a city or a county might be subject to, like open records and, and that sort of stuff. The interesting thing about our system design is that even though we're a governmental authority, we receive no tax dollars. So we operate completely on the revenue that we generate from the various programs that we do. Okay. Are there any other programs kind of like that that receive no tax money? The official model of MedStar is called a public utility model. And it was designed back in the mid-80s by an economist who realized that the cost of providing emergency medical services is primarily in the infrastructure, the cost of readiness, if you will. So having resources available 24-7 on standby to meet the 911 demands of a region. And those models are relatively unique. There are only about 10 of them in the country. But those models are the highest performing most studied systems in the country because the data is very pure. We are very data-driven. We can talk more about that in a minute. Um, But the model is relatively unique, but we are the least expensive EMS system in the state and maybe in the country, um, but also the highest value. Okay. You mentioned being data-driven. It sounds like you guys kind of operate like a normal business. Do you still have to go through kind of traditional government approval for things, or do you guys kind of operate on your own island? We have a public board that is appointed by the member cities that are part of the authority, and those cities join together in an interlocal agreement, and that interlocal agreement establishes the authority board. So all of our operations do report up through a public board appointed by the cities that are part of the system. Okay. Interesting. You had mentioned kind of the new economic model for EMS. Can you kind of explain that and where things are going there? 
Sure. The focus of today's healthcare system, not just the emergency side, but the healthcare system in general, is on value. And transitioning from a fee-for-service transactional type of healthcare experience to a value-based, quality-based, uh, transformative type of model instead of transactional. And for 40 years, EMS, specifically the ambulance component of that, has been transactional. We get paid by insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid only if we transport patients. And we know that there is certainly value to some of that, but in terms of the outcome difference that it brings to the patient and the value that it may bring to the payer, it's been a little bit hard to prove that because you went to the hospital by ambulance with your arm fracture or your leg fracture, that your outcome was any different. So for the last 10 years or so, MedStar has been sort of on the cutting edge nationally on transforming the types of services that we provide, um, still certainly doing the 911 emergency work, but trying to work with community partners to prevent a 911 call because patients will be less expensive to manage. They will have a better experience of care if they never have to call. So working with hospitals and payers and home health agencies and hospice agencies to identify patients who are at high risk for calling 911 or who are at high risk or who do use the emergency department as their primary care provider or who are at risk for hospital admissions that could be preventable, using specially trained paramedics and nurses and, and really our entire infrastructure to work proactively with those patients to help them not have to call 911, get reconnected with their doctor, use all of the other community resources that are available to them to um, not have to have them use acute care. That brings much more value, certainly to the patient, but arguably to the payer so the Aetna, the Blues, Cigna, um, Medicare, Medicaid, um, those organizations as payers derive more value from MedStar and other EMS systems by preventing a, an expensive 911 call and transport to an expensive emergency department to help navigate those patients through the system. In some cases, we have programs where even when patients do call 911, we can respond, assess, determine that, you know, this patient Matt, might not need to go to the emergency room, but they might need to go see their doctor today or go to an urgent care or a community clinic and navigate them to those resources instead of to the emergency department. Much better patient outcomes, much better experience of care at a much reduced expense. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. How are you guys doing that? Is that purely through training on specific things to look for or is it kind of data on specific patients like how do you determine who falls into what bucket it can happen a couple of ways when we first started doing this mobile integrated healthcare system we did it with patients that we had identified from our data mining that were in the executive platinum level of our frequent flyer club. Okay. <laughs> These were people. Not who, a good club to be in. Not necessarily, well, depending on your perspective, but certainly from an expense perspective. And we started with about two dozen super high utilizer patients who were calling 911 in, in some cases multiple times a day. And we were schlepping them to the emergency department, and it was just this hamster wheel. And most of those patients for us didn't have a payer source. 
So we were expending resources to keep ambulances available to respond to those calls, responding, taking them to the emergency department, and nobody was getting reimbursed for that. And it was very difficult for the patients because they probably could have gotten better health care in a different way. So identifying those initial 2021 20, patients and working with them and community partners and all of the different stakeholders, we found that using specially trained paramedics who know the resources available in the community, who know a lot about disease process, can reduce the utilization in that population by almost half. So that program, just that one high utilizer program, has grown from the initial 21 patients to the point now we've put thousands of people through that program, either because we've identified them as high 911 utilizers or the patients have been referred to us by hospitals or commercial insurers or other partners who have recognized that this core group of people are a huge spend for them. And by taking those patients into this program, having the payers pay for this program, been able to improve those patients' outcomes and reduce their acute care utilization. Interesting. I mean, along those same lines of having patients that without a payer source, is that a big issue here in Tarrant County? It is. Um, just on the regular 911 side, 30% of the 911 calls that we respond to and transport patients to the emergency department are patients who don't have insurance or in some cases they have insurance but with a very high deductible mm -hmm. and the patient is responsible for paying that bill and honestly matt those claims are very difficult to collect because in tarrant county for the medstar system and we can come back to this concept here in just a moment we bill about $1,500 for an emergency advanced life support ambulance response and transport. And a lot of people have a hard time paying that bill. Mm -hmm. So if the person themselves are responsible, we very rarely collect. We just did a recent data analysis and of the private pay patients that we send a bill to, the average amount of dollars that we collect on that $1,500 bill is $56. And the majority of them just don't pay at all. Do they get sent to collections or like what, how do you guys, do you just write it off? How does that work? We do soft collections. Um, and by soft collections, yes, we do use a collection agency, mm -hmm. um, but we don't attach liens on people's property. Okay. We don't garnish their wages. There was just recently, as you're probably aware, being in the healthcare systems, um, hospitals that garnish people's wages. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was just an article that came out um, this week where a healthcare, very well-respected healthcare system in the Atlanta area have has started requiring patients to pay upfront for procedures that they're gonna have in the hospital if they wanna receive that procedure there. So it's becoming a big issue for healthcare in general, but for us, the challenge is for any 911 provider is that when somebody calls 911, we have to go. The patient doesn't have to pay. So we do everything that we can to try and collect those dollars, especially since we're not relying on any tax dollars at all, mm -hmm. um, but also do it in a humane way so that the people who truly can't pay, we do write off. Gotcha. Along the lines of data that you were talking about earlier, can you kind of explain the MedSAR model? I think it's interesting for somebody that might see the ambulances around but have no idea kind of why they're sitting at a quick trip or how you guys 
keep your costs down and operate so efficiently? Sure. So MedStar's annual budget is about $50 million. So we have to, that's, that's what we're going to collect as far as revenue. So we need to make sure that our expenses are hopefully a dollar or two less than that. Mm -hmm. um, staffing an ambulance is the most expensive part of what we do. It costs about three quarters of a million dollars a year to staff an ambulance. And we know that 911 medical calls are reasonably predictable. At four o'clock in the morning, most people, even you, Matt, are sleeping and they're not crashing into each other. They're not falling down the stairs and that kind of thing. So the call volume is relatively low at four o'clock in the morning. So we staff a low number of ambulances. So for example, we might staff 30 to 32 ambulances at four o'clock in the morning. However, at five o'clock in the afternoon, when three quarters of the people are driving somewhere and crashing into each other and arriving at home and finding grandma on the floor where she's been for four hours and calling 911. That's our peak call volume time. And oh, by the way, during that time frame, you cannot drive anywhere in our service area over 40 miles an hour. Because even on 35 or 30, it's just very, very congested. So during those peak times, we will staff 52 ambulances on the street. The reason that we flex our staffing is to control costs while maintaining service reliability. So if we know that on five o'clock, at five o'clock on weekdays, we're going to need to have 52 ambulances on the street, there's no reason for us to have 52 on the street at four o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. So we stagger shifts throughout the course of a day to maximize the number of units on the street in the late afternoon, but not have as many on in the middle of the morning or early, early morning. Now, we also don't have any stations because stations are expensive. And if you're utilizing your resources well, they would never be in the station anyway. So to the point that you raised, we have a very data-driven computer-aided dispatch system that analyzes our call volume and, and reveals hourly that at noon on Tuesdays in July, this is where calls typically come from, and it projects that onto a map. And then the computer system, along with our communication center, pre-assigns ambulances to those areas to wait for the inevitable call. So when your listeners are driving around Fort Worth and the cities that are around Fort Worth and they see an ambulance parked at Quick Trip at Las Vegas and 30 or the Quick Trip um, at Western Center and 35, uh, wherever they see those ambulances parked, the ambulances are sitting there because they've been pre-assigned to that post location by the computer because there's a high likelihood of a call occurring in that area in the next hour. So when that call occurs, the ambulance with its crew inside literally go from park to drive and they are en route to that call. And once they complete that call, they will be assigned to a different post, which now has a higher priority um, for that coverage. And we do that about 700 times a day, moving ambulances from post to post to cover anticipated demand and some geographic coverage um, just to make sure that we've got the, the ge geography covered. Mm -hmm. um, but we do that to make sure response times are as quick as they can be and to make very efficient use of our resources. The typical 12-hour MedStar unit that's out on the street will do five to six calls in 12 hours. Um, that might compare to a fire department unit that may do two calls in 24 hours. Um, much different economic model. Okay. 
from that data, are you guys changing from week to week, like Tuesday in July versus Tuesday in August? Are those going to be two totally different places just based on your data, or is it kind of standardized? The, the schedule changes based on all sorts of different factors. Um, one is just growth of the community. So we have, uh, and we do continually add resources yeah, to the street just because the population is growing. I mean, last year, Fort Worth gained 20,000 residents and they went from the 17th largest city to the 13th largest city. So we have to continually add resources, but the, the schedule does change periodically based on things like seasonal adjustment. Our summers in Fort Worth are much busier than the wintertime. So we may have a fewer number of units on the street in the wintertime because the call volume tends to be a little bit lower. Whereas in the summer where you have heat related issues and parties all night long and more people out and about, we'll have more units on the street. In the wintertime, we may shrink that a little bit because the call volume is a little bit lower. You were telling me about the subscription service. Can yes. you kind of highlight that and kind of who that is good for? Since the inception of MedStar, um, part of the interlocal agreement between all the cities, um, we, in that interlocal, MedStar offers a membership program or a subscription program. It's called Star Saver. We know that a $1,500 ambulance bill is pretty tough for some people to meet. We also know that many insurance companies don't pay the full amount of mm -hmm. that ambulance trip. So what a StarSaver membership does for the member is it waives any of the uncovered cost of that ambulance transport to the hospital. So let's say, Matt, that um, you have mediocre insurance mm -hmm. and um, we transport you to the hospital and we send you a $1,500 bill and the insurance company um, pays $800 of that. And they say, hey, the rest is on you. If you are not a StarSaver member, we're going to go after you for the balance. Mm -hmm. If you are a Star Saver member, we're going to waive the balance. And how we're able to do that is the members pay an annual subscription fee to be part of the Star Saver program. That subscription fee is $69 a year for your entire household. So if you have five, six, eight people that are in your resident household, all of the people in your household are covered under that Star Saver membership. The money that we collect from that revenue stream helps cover the costs to us for writing off those uncovered gotcha. services. So it's designed to be essentially budget neutral for us, um, but it helps prevent the worry that people will have. And we have this happen, Matt, literally every day where people will say, I, I don't wanna go to the hospital by ambulance because it's gonna be too expensive. We'd like to take that decision off the table for people to say, hey, be a Star Saver member. It, you know, if you use the ambulance once in 10 years, it's gonna pay for itself. Mm -hmm. um, and if you have five, six, seven people in your house, somebody's gonna use an ambulance. We meet 400 people every day who never thought they would need an ambulance. <laughs> um, so we strongly Very encourage true. people to uh, subscribe to that Star Saver program. We're actually starting to work with some of the businesses in the community to make it a member benefit for their employees um, just as an automatic part of their benefit package. Because again, we know that ambulance trips can be very expensive. Yeah, along that line, a couple questions there. Can employers directly contract with MedStar or do you kind of push them to the membership model? We, uh, we haven't done it in the past, but we're now this year gonna be marketing directly to the employers to subscribe their employees into the Star Saver program. The, 
companies don't need to contract with us. Yeah. They just become the sponsor for that yeah. program. And they yeah. say, okay, so I work for, just to pick an example, Gus Bates. And they say, okay, we're going to have all of our employees that work for Gus, ba Gus Bates be in the Star Saver program. And for each employee, it's 12 bucks a year, whatever. Gus Bates just writes a check for $12 times however many employees. And now everybody that works for them is covered under the Star Saver program. It's much simpler, much easier. Gotcha. Makes total sense. I noticed online there was a video kind of illustrating when to use Uber versus <laughs> an ambulance. I'm sure that would be beneficial for a quick highlight there, just because yeah. obviously you see 400 people that don't expect it. Who is Uber good for versus the the ambulance? Yeah. And the reason that we put that on the website, Matt, is because there are people who ask that question all the time. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that in markets where rideshare services are widely available, the ambulance volume decreases about 7%. And that was a study done out in California, a national study that was done, I think, by um, University of Southern California. And quite frankly, we, to a large extent, encourage people to use rideshare or whatever way they can to get to the hospital if it's not an emergency. Mm -hmm. um, if you've got nausea, vomiting, you know, kind of those low acuity types of complaints, we would encourage people to do that. However, just know that Lyft, Uber, whoever it is, that those folks have no medical training. I think in some cases now they're CPR certified, but uh, we certainly don't want people to have to go into cardiac arrest in, in the back of a lift. But um, if there's, there is a difference between, you know, using your app to, you know, get a Uber or Lyft to take you to the hospital because you've got a minor medical complaint, as opposed to, you know, summoning them to your car crash or to your chest pain call or your difficulty breathing call. In those cases, you want those EMTs and those paramedics who can come to the scene, give you medication, give you breathing treatments, um, alleviate your pain with pain medication because we enjoy doing that because it makes people more comfortable um, to use the 911 system for the emergency calls and certainly use rideshare or whatever for the low acuity transports. Mm -hmm. We actually have a partnership with Lyft. In our 911 communication center, we have a very innovative program, one of only four in the country, and we were one of the first that we have a specially trained nurse in our 911 center. So if someone calls 911 with a low acuity medical complaint, the nurse jumps on that call with, with the caller and goes through a very rigorous secondary assessment. And if it's appropriate to go to an urgent care or to go to your doctor or to go to wherever and you need transportation, we can request lift on your behalf and have that lift go to your home or to your office, pick you up, take you to the clinic, um, and in some rare cases, maybe even take you back home again or back to the office if you're going back to work, I suppose. But integrating the emergency services with non-medical transport makes sense. Um, and in fact, CMS, Medicare, has liked our model so much that they're doing a new program that makes that capability more available across the country. Back to kind of employers and what people are doing here locally, you've got a very broad perspective within healthcare. How would you, any tips for employers here or in Texas to be kind of better consumers that you've seen that might be, call it low hanging fruit? Yeah. And what we've seen, and, and a lot of the health systems have been really good at this, is helping people and let's call them patients, helping patients navigate the healthcare system. The U.S. healthcare system is very complicated, very confusing for people. And when people get frustrated, when they get 
befuddled and not know what to do, oftentimes they end up calling 911 because well, we've taught them to do that. Um, but employers can work with their employees to educate them on ways to get healthcare, um, doing things, maybe even partnering with organizations like MedStar on a MedStar on demand type of service. So we literally last week got a phone call from a very large uh, manufacturing I guess manufacturing, we can call it bottling brewery, if you will, I won't name mm -hmm. who it was, but they um, are interested in partnering with us to be sort of like an occupational medicine referral. So if they have somebody who is sick or injured, um, instead of just default calling 911, can they call our communication center, talk to the nurse, walk through with the nurse what's going on with that employee and determine, do we need to send an ambulance? Is it okay for that person just to go home? Is it so we, do we send Lyft to that location, pick up the patient, the employee, to take them to the occupational health clinic or to take them to their own doctor? Um, so the, the, as, as much as possible, the employers should be figuring out ways to help their employees navigate this very complex healthcare system instead of just deciding at five o'clock in the afternoon, hey, I don't feel well, I'm going to the ER. Well, there are a ton of other resources that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, let us help you figure out what is the most appropriate place for you to go for your medical condition. Awesome. Along that same line, I, are you guys able to do like health fairs, biometric screening, things like that for an employer here? Or do you kind of default to, to other vendors in that space? Yeah, if there's a gap, and this is one of the things that we've been really good at, if there's a gap that, that we think we can fill on behalf of an employer, on behalf of a community group, um, we will consider that. And we've done many, many things. We have a, um, a bus, and it's called an AMBUS, that's part of our system, and that AMBUS can be configured as a clinic. And we've used that bus, um, for example, most recently at Panther Island for a very large event where it was very hot outside. And uh, in the course of about six hours, we, treat, we treated 12 people for heat-related illnesses um, and did not have to take them to the hospital. We brought them into the bus, we assessed them, um, gave them some water, started in some cases, started IVs, rehydrated them, um, did all that sort of stuff to prevent them from having to go to the hospital. Um, that same concept could be used at a health fair or something like that where we have specially trained paramedics or EMTs there to do blood pressure screenings and blood sugar screenings and um, even EKGs, you know, just to give people a baseline EKG and print it out and give it to them and scan it and they can put it on their phone so that they know what their normal EKG looks like. So if two years from now they're having chest pain and someone does a second EKG, somebody's got something to refer to. Well, you know, two years ago, here's what my EKG looked like. <laughs> so things like that are always possible mm -hmm. if, if the employer or whoever the sponsor is feels that that would bring value to them. Good to know. Surprise bills are a major topic in the news these days, especially with the upcoming election. What are your thoughts on kind of where things are going there? So, it, it, and I'm, I'm so glad they asked that question because this is a, a question obviously that comes up in the halls of Congress or Austin or other places. Um, the reality is that the consumer, the public, so let's, we'll just speak specifically about the MedStar system. So as I said earlier, we operate with no tax subsidy. That's the determination of the member cities. They want the people who use the system to pay for it. Makes sense. Um, in our case, we have to bill for the services that we provide, and we know that it costs us $400 to do an ambulance transport to the hospital on an emergency call. Okay, in order for us to remain subsidy-free, we need to collect at least $401 to mm -hmm. do that transport. When you have 
people, as we mentioned earlier, that just don't pay at all, and that's 30% of your payer mix, that becomes a problem because you're not collecting any dollars for that. But then you have cases where uh, organizations and payers like Medicare and Medicaid, which is about half of our payer mix, pay less than the cost of delivering the service. Um, that leaves the insured population, the commercial insurance, yeah. to sort of bear the brunt of what it costs that we're not collecting from the other payers. So in that pie, we know we have to bill that $1,500 in order to, to collect on average 420 bucks, whatever it is. A lot of that comes from the cost shift in the healthcare system that really requires the commercial insurers to pay for the people who are not paying. Medicare, Medicaid, and the uninsured who just don't pay at all. So if we didn't balance bill, so if we said, hey, we're going to accept whatever your insurance pays, your insurance pays, to use your example earlier, pays $800 on mm -hmm. that $1,500 bill, then we're going to drop from a $420 revenue per transport to $350 or $320, whatever the number is. The gap between what it costs us to provide the service and what it what we collect will have to be made up somehow. And that could most likely be from tax subsidy. So the cities would then have to decide, we're gonna pay into the system because the collections, because the insurers and others aren't paying enough to keep the system running at the level that we want. Um, so if balance billing went away, that would be the net impact. So you and I and others who live in the city of Fort Worth or any of the member cities that are part of the MedStar system would have to kick in our tax dollars to cover the cost of the service that we might not ever use. Um, so back to your very simple question about balanced billing. If the insurers agreed to pay the usual and customary fee for that ambulance transport, then the balance bill would be very low. When the insurers pay significantly less than that usual and customary charge, now we've got a situation where we need to balance bill. What we often refer to, and, and this may resonate with some of your listeners, is we like to call it not surprise billing. We like to refer to it as surprise coverage, where the cost of the emergency service that the member requested was not covered by their insurance. And, and the insured member should ask their insurance company, why aren't you covering more of this? Now, we know that there are some egregious examples of incredibly high cost of service. And we use air ambulances yeah. as the specific example because that's gotten a lot of media attention. The air ambulance model is very complicated and it's very expensive to put a helicopter in the air. The question becomes, is that helicopter transport bringing the value to the payer that they believe is worth it to them to pay that bill. So we've had cases where helicopters have transported patients three, four, five miles. And you begin to ask yourself, so why did they use a helicopter for that when you know ground ambulance or critical care ambulance would be just as effective in, in that regard? So the growth in the air ambulance transports has been relatively related to the growth of helicopters in general. Healthcare is an interesting market, Matt, as, as you know, and it's one of those situations where we say, in many cases, supply creates demand. Just had a recent conversation with one of our local hospital CEOs, and they just opened up a satellite emergency room. 
uh, about 10 miles from their main campus. And they were sharing with us that since they've opened that uh, satellite emergency room, the ER there has seen 12 to 15 patients a day. We said, that's great. Does that mean that there are 12 to 15 patients a day that are not coming to your main campus because they're going to the satellite location? And the answer was, well, no. We're still getting the same ER volume that we were getting before, um, but now we've got this additional volume going to the freestanding. And for the, the economist in me says, well, you just created more cost to the system where you know those patients may have been going to their own doctor they may have been going to an urgent care um, but now instead they're going to an emergency department and have you really helped the situation or in some cases uh, is it becoming more economically challenging to support all of these freestanding or standalone emergency departments that you see proliferating um, all over this region and certainly all over texas texas is this the state that has the most freestanding ERs. Uh, in fact, I heard, I, I read one report a year or two ago that there are more freestanding ERs in the state of Texas than there are in the rest of the country um, because there's no regulation that limits uh, the ability for those types of facilities to be owned and operated and, and, and opened. Interesting. So it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, on your example of air ambulances and that three to four mile ride, does the patient have any say in that decision? The patient certainly has a say. Just like when they call 911, the patient has a say about whether or not they go to the emergency department. So patient choice, thankfully, in our country and certainly in our state, um, really reigns supreme. However, most patients will take the advice of the medical professional. So if the doctor in the emergency room says, hey, we need to send you to our downtown campus um, and we're going to do it by helicopter because we think that's best for you, very few people will say, no, I don't want to go by helicopter because it's too expensive. I don't know I'm going to get stuck with a $10,000 bill that my insurance company isn't going to pay uh, or I'm going to get a $20,000 bill insurance will pay $10,000. I'm going to be yeah. stuck for the balance. Uh, I'd rather go by ground because it's, you know, a different You're not decimal thinking point. about it at that point. <laughs> right, yeah. you're not. You're, you're, and, and it becomes very um, difficult for the patient to really exert their decision-making authority because they're relying on the facility, the, the experts in the facility, to make that determination about how should they be transported. Now, what's fascinating is there is a community who uh, had a satellite emergency room, and that satellite emergency room was licensed under their main campus. So any transports, air or ground, by ambulance that went from that satellite facility to their downtown campus had to be paid by the hospital, right? Because it's on the same uh, national provider number. And this might be getting into too much, too much detail for some of your listeners, but it, it sort of typifies the issue. Um, in the beginning, that facility was using a helicopter all the time to go the 10 miles um, from their satellite facility to the main campus for patients that had a heart attack or other things. And after the facility started getting 10, 12, 14, $30,000 helicopter transport bills, they said, time out. Let's look at this again. Let's look at a different model and let's stop using the helicopter all the time because the outcome really isn't any different if you go by air or by ground. And it's certainly a lot less expensive and certainly a lot easier for the patient to go by ground ambulance than it is to go by helicopter. It's not as cool, perhaps, but mm -hmm. certainly much um, less disruptive, both clinically and economically, to go by uh, a, a more appropriate, more economical means. Does MedStar operate any 
helicopters or just ambulances? Yeah, we do not operate helicopter service. We had looked at it several years ago and the demand was so minimal for helicopter service. Now we have great partners. We have three different helicopter programs that operate in the area that we can request a helicopter to the scene of a call. But when you think about the Metroplex, there are hospitals everywhere. And even in the most serious trauma case, it it is often quicker to actually take that patient by ground to the hospital than it is a helicopter. Now, the flight time versus the drive time might be a little quicker Mm because you don't have traffic issues. You don't, you can go literally as the crow flies. But the reality is that the time that it takes to launch the helicopter, land the helicopter, take off again, land again, and get them downstairs to the emergency room, it's much quicker to slide a stretcher into the back of the ambulance and go. Um, so in our system, and, and we have a pretty wide coverage area, it's about a 435 square mile coverage area, um, we rarely, rarely request helicopter service. And it's less than 10 times a month that we'll, we'll use helicopter to the scene. And even in those cases, it's usually because the patient has a burn and needs to go to Parkland in Dallas. Um, and it's a critical burn that we can't manage by ground. We take patients by ground to Parkland from here all the time. Mm-hmm. But if they have serious burns, they may go by helicopter. Um, or if for some reason, there's horrible traffic. So if we're on the north side, just outside the loop, and you know there's stopped traffic because of a bad wreck on 35 that we're managing, um, then we might use a helicopter, but rarely rarely. Uh, We just had a scenario last Friday where we had a seven patient, very serious car crash. And from the time the call came in to the time that we had all seven patients, four of whom were very critical, off the scene was less than 30 minutes. Um, And and that's with four different ambulances. Using a helicopter in that scenario would be sort of silly because you can have everybody off the scene and in the hospital in the time that it would take for the helicopter to even get to the scene. Now, to, to kind of jump back to the cost, uh, if you're billing 1500 is that regardless of how far of a trip? Does that play into it, or is it typically a flat 1500 Yeah, super question. So that $1,500 charge that I quoted was the average patient okay. bill. Um, a portion of that is the base rate, and a portion of that, believe it or not, is mileage. So when Medicare was first set up back in the 60s, Ambulance transportation was the benefit that's literally in the 1965 Medicare and Social Security Act. So because it's a transportation benefit, there's actually a mileage fee. Um, The mileage fee generally is much, much less than the actual base rate because the base rate encompasses the cost of readiness, having those you know, 50 ambulances in the system to respond to a 911 call and get there in under 11 minutes um, 90% of the time. Those are the things that are the expense to the system, and that's why the bill tends to be so high. And and because none of the cities subsidize it. You can go to some areas of the country, um, let's say just because we looked at this recently, um, Columbus, Ohio. So Columbus, Ohio is very, very similar Mm -hmm. in population demographics to Fort Worth. And in, in Columbus, the city subsidizes heavily the ambulance service, and the bills are much lower because there the city has decided that they're going to use tax dollars to underwrite the cost of service delivery so their average patient charge is lower. Um, Here, the philosophy is we don't want the taxpayers to have to pay for it. The patients who use it should pay for it. So that's why it's a $1,500 fee. Makes sense. 
we can wrap up with a few quick questions. Uh, Lightning round, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, what books have you been reading? Ah, um, I am not a huge book reader. However, um, every day I read um, industry trade journals. I read um, USA Today prolifically, um, a lot of different, um, as I said, trade journals, um, but not a lot of books. I did recently read um, Team of Teams, which was a great book. And then um, the follow-up book to that, and your listeners are going to hate me for this, but I can't remember the name of it, because those are good leadership books. And a lot of our folks um, want to aspire to be great leaders. So if we can be good leaders and help impart some of that knowledge to the folks that we get to work with, um, that sort of helps. Now, I am a huge Patricia Cornwell fan. So all of her books, um, you know, the Scarpetta series, when my wife and I go on long trips to different Harley events or whatever, we'll get some of those audiobooks and listen to those books while we're traveling. They're fascinating books. Do you have a Harley? I, I actually have two. My okay. wife and I both ride. Um, it is our, our passion. And some of your listeners are going to say, holy crap, this guy's an EMT and he works for MedStar and he rides a Harley. And you bet. Um, it, because it's it, we're adrenaline junkies as EMTs and paramedics. So riding a Harley is a little bit relaxing, but it's pretty exciting because it's sort of like being a target whenever you're on the street. So you got to pay attention. Um, but it's a great social environment and they do great charitable work here in the community. Um, and we love Harley riding. So she, she rides, I ride. And yes, we are. We have two Harleys in our garage. Very cool. Uh, if you could fix one thing in healthcare, what would it be? Oh, this is going to be very controversial. Um, but you know, I've spent a lot of time studying different health health systems across the country, and um, actually, my son-in-law is from the UK, and I spent a lot of time in the UK studying the UK system. And I, it, I think if we could wave a magic wand, the one thing that would fix the majority, not all, but would fix the majority of the ails of our current healthcare system is a universal payer. It doesn't have to be the government. It can be a universal payer. When you look at the UK and France and Canada and Australia, their health outcomes are significantly better than ours. Their expense per capita is a third of what ours is because they have a motivated payer to keep you healthy. The things that we're doing here in Fort Worth through our mobile integrated healthcare and community paramedic program, um, the UK and, and Australia and others have been doing that for years because they recognize the value of their EMS system navigating patients, not taking them to the emergency room. We just had two summers ago, seven interns from Australia and they were paramedic interns and they are the second highest healthcare, uh, second highest paid healthcare professional in Australia. Paramedics are. Nurses go to paramedic school to become paramedics in Australia. And the reason that the Australian government, and the UK does this to a large extent, and even Canada, the reason that they pay paramedics so well is that those paramedics are highly educated, highly trained, and when they respond to an emergency call, they don't take people to the hospital unless they really need to go. They treat them on scene. They refer them to general practitioners. So the payer is investing in patient navigation. They are the, the providers, because they're all paid by the government, they are not motivated to do transactional health care. You talk to a physician, a nurse, not a nurse, but a physician, hospitals, um, they make more money the more things they do to you. So if you 
flip that and say, we're going to pay you based on the outcomes of your patients, outcome including the cost. Now you've got healthcare providers that are grounded in a little bit of reality about the cost of providing care, not just how much they're going to make by doing additional procedures. Sorry, I, you're going to get hate mail, and I apologize, but <laughs> yeah. I'm just being Didn't very expect realistic. That, but I'm just yeah. being very realistic. That's awesome. I so. appreciate the perspective, and thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It's Matt. Thanks again for tuning in to Healthy Conversations. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. If you really loved it, share the episode on social media. It really helps our iTunes ranking. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.